Turn with me again, if you will, to the book of Genesis, chapter 17. <coughs> Genesis 17. <coughs> Genesis 17 is a crucial chapter for understanding of what's going on in the Bible. It's a chapter which raises all kinds of issues. This week there's an undeclared war in the Middle East between the Israelis and the Palestinians. To some extent they're fighting about the issues talked about in Genesis 17. Unfortunately both sides misunderstand what it teaches. <clears throat> but lots of Christians misunderstand what this section teaches. <laughs> it's, there's lots of issues that are disagreed on in the church. And we won't even attempt to resolve them all. But I think that God has some wonderful truths to teach us here nonetheless. We won't get all the way through this this morning, but uh, let's, let's begin. Let me read most of the chapter. <clears throat> I'll read down to um, verse uh, 20, 22. <clears throat> we'll leave off the last paragraph. We won't get to that. <clears throat> when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will confirm my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will be you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you are now an alien, I will give you as an everlasting, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you must keep my covenant you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. This is a covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your, not your offspring. Whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. God also said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Abraham fell face down. He laughed and said to himself, Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of ninety? And Abraham said to God, If only Ishmael might live under your blessing. Then God said, Yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son, and you will call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. <clears throat> and as for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will surely bless him. I will make him fruitful and will greatly increase his numbers. He will be the father of 12 rulers. 
<coughs> I will make him, make him into a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear you by this time next year. When he had finished speaking with Abraham, God went up from him. And we'll stop there. <clears throat> We're not going to deal with this whole chapter today. We're going to leave the subject of circumcision until next week, which is a good bit of the chapter from verses 9 to 14, and then the last paragraph that we didn't read. <clears throat> but apart from the significance of that sign, which we'll discuss later, this chapter nonetheless has a couple of powerful things to teach us. Um, in addition to many things that we've heard before that are repeated here, yet there are some wonderful truths that I want us to see in this passage. <clears throat> the first is this, that God sets the terms of his covenant. God sets the terms of his covenant. We live in a day in which it might be said that everything is negotiable. If you don't like something, just hold out for a better deal. Everything is negotiable. But because that is such a widespread reality in our culture, we sometimes have difficulty understanding the nature of God's covenant. For God, as God presents his covenant, it is not like a labor contract where all the parties sit down at the negotiating table and work out an arrangement that's acceptable to everyone. That's not what God's covenant is like. God's covenant is more like an ancient suzerainty treaty. That's a treaty made by a big powerful king with his little weak neighbor. In such a treaty, the strong king offers his protection and imposes his governing and demands whatever he pleases, normally taxes and obedience, and from, from the weak king, and in exchange, he demands of the weak king uh, a, a total uh, obedience and uh, allegiance. Of course, the weak king has a choice. He can surrender to the control of the strong, powerful neighbor and enjoy his protection, or he can refuse and suffer the consequences. Not a great choice, but he has that choice. What he cannot do is to renegotiate the terms of such a treaty. In verse 1, God just appears and lays out the terms of Abram's relationship with him. He says, I am God Almighty. You will walk before me and be blameless. Boom. There it is. The Lord claims total sovereignty. He doesn't come and say, let's sit down and have a talk and negotiate. He expects Abraham to relinquish his control of his life and do what God says. In fact, in those first eight verses, God says, I will, no less than seven times. I will confirm my covenant. I will greatly increase your numbers. I will make you fruitful. I will make nations of you. I will establish my covenant. I will give you an everlasting possession. I will be the God of your descendants. And then in verse 9, he begins to say, and you must. <laughs> of course, when we look for exactly what Abram must do, we find that there's not like a long list. It's just unconditional allegiance. Derek Kidner notes the striking feature of the stipulations of this covenant is their lack of detail. To be committed was everything. The implications could be left unwritten until Sinai. For Abram was pledged to a master, only secondarily to a way of life. 
Oh, certainly God promises wonderful blessings here. God promises his care. He promises to be God to them. He promises to bless them. He promises to prosper them. But make no mistake, God sets the terms of his covenant. That's one of the differences between this chapter and chapter 15. In chapter 15, God privately enters into a covenant with Abram and makes it very clear that his covenant is all of grace. You remember that wonderful picture that we saw in chapter 15 where God is taking the covenant-making walk between the corridor of the sacrificial animals divided and laid down this path. And as the two parties walk to make a covenant, God walks all alone while Abram lies helplessly on the side. This is all grace, all grace dependent on God. That's chapter 15. But in chapter 17, God publicly confirms that covenant that he made, gives a covenant sign in circumcision, and now the emphasis is not primarily on how gracious it is, but on God's total sovereignty in this covenant. God alone sets the terms of his covenant. Now the truth is, we tend to want a God of grace who will have mercy on us in the face of our failures, and so did Abram. Abram was undoubtedly painfully aware of his failure in regard to Hagar. God has been totally silent for 13 years. God want, Abram wants a God of grace. But most of us, do not want a God who claims absolute claim over our lives, absolute control over our lives. Dr. Ian Duggan says it very clearly. Let me just read his comment. Many people think they can decide what God will be like. They want to pick and choose what they will believe and what they will do. They certainly don't want a God who makes too many demands on them. My God is not like that, they will say. In other words, they don't want a God who is God. The real question, however, is not what you would like God to be, but what he really is like. And he has revealed himself as a God who made a covenant with his people. And when the great king comes and offers to establish a covenant with you, you really have only two choices. You can accept the covenant relationship on his terms and receive its benefits. Or you can refuse it and face the consequences. But God sets the terms of the covenant. I don't want to minimize God's grace in any way. God's covenant is all of grace. We offer him nothing. We come bringing nothing to it. We only receive mercy. We can never stand in our own holiness, no matter how much he demands holiness of us. We can never stand on the basis of our holiness. But the God of all grace does demand absolute sovereignty over his people. When he says, I will be your God and you will be my people, he means it. He intends to be in the driver's seat. He intends to be God to us and to Abraham. And that means we'd better expect some changes. Think of the changes which he brought to Abram and Sarah. First of all, he changed their names. 
Someone has said that a person's own name is the sweetest word in all human language to their ears. God changed their name. Changed Abram to Abraham, Sarai to Sarah. In the case of uh, Abraham, though it seems like a minor little addition to his name, it really is no small thing. The word, the name Abram meant father of many. We can only imagine how many times when Abram said to some visiting stranger, and they said, what's your name? And he says, Abram, father of many. You can only imagine how many times he says, oh, how many? And he had to answer, uh, none, none, none. <laughs> you can just see the smirks. Well, at least he has one now. He has Ishmael. Now God says, Abram, you're no longer be called Abram. I'm changing your name. Your name is going to be Abraham. Abraham means, not father, many, but father of a multitude, father of nations. Can you just imagine when Abram came and announced this to his family and friends? Hey, I'm going to change my name. God has changed my name. Oh, it's about time some of his friends may have thought. Enough of this father of many. The guy's 99 years old already. He has no children except just one little boy. So, Abram, what's your new name? Well, from now on, you can call me father of a multitude. <laughs> can you hear the snickers? <laughs> but you see, no matter how ridiculous it might have sounded to someone else, this is God setting the terms of his covenant. He changes whatever he pleases. I challenge you with this, for so often we're willing to have God's grace to bring us forgiveness, but we don't want him messing with our life. Well, there's no such place to stand. Our only hope is God's covenant of grace, which he has brought to fulfillment in Jesus but he sets the terms of that covenant, and his terms are very clear. You hand over the reins to me. I will be your God. Well, that's not the only change that God brought to Abraham. He also commanded him to be circumcised. Now, we're going to talk about that next week and what that all meant. So we don't want to get into it too far, except to make this point. If you think your name is personal, and changing your name would be painful... This was faith that penetrated even to the most personal areas of Abraham's life in the most painful way. I challenge you. How deeply does your faith penetrate your life? For so many it affects our Sunday mornings, not even Sunday evenings for most of us. Does it penetrate your sexuality? Does it penetrate your social life? Does it penetrate your thought life? Your business practices? Your marriage? Your leisure time? Your retirement plans? Your checkbook? You see, so often we, we, we want to embrace the promises of God. But there always are little things, our private relationships, our private thoughts, our own motives, our own pleasures that 
are off limits to God. Oh no. Nothing is off limits. He intends to change us profoundly from the inside out. That's the mandate of Romans 12. Present your bodies a living sacrifice unto God, holy and acceptable. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. There is no limit to the transformation which God has in mind. For this he sent his son to make us holy through and through. That's what he said to Abraham. Walk before me in my presence every moment. Walk before me and be blameless. God sovereignly sets the terms of his covenant with us. There's another great truth here. <clears throat> a truth as encouraging as this one is penetrating. And that's this. That God is able to do what he promised. God is able to do what he promised. As we get older and wiser and more experienced, we tend to lower our expectations. It's easy to begin to flatten God's promises to remove the supernatural, to remove the outrageous, to remove the radical elements and kind of tame the faith. Get it down to expectations we can understand and results we can guarantee with the resources we have at hand. But here we learn that God's ways are greater than our ways and his plans are beyond our wildest dreams. It was true of Abraham and it's also true of us. Here we're reminded that God is able to do what he promised. This truth is first, uh, first confronts us in the very first verse when we read, The Lord appeared to Abraham and said, I am God Almighty. I am God Almighty. The name God calls himself here is actually El Shaddai. That's translated God Almighty. This is the very first time that God has used this name, and the very first time we find this name in the scripture, first time God has used it for himself. Why? What does it add to this particular discussion? Why does God suddenly pull out this name? I am God Almighty. I am El Shaddai. Well, this name of God speaks of his power. It speaks of his might, especially over against the frailty of our humanity. It's been literally translated, the God who is sufficient. God Almighty. The great Old Testament scholar Franz Delich claims that El Shaddai designates, I quote here, the God who compels nature to do what is contrary to itself and subdues it to bow and minister to grace. And the very name by which God introduces himself to Abraham, even before he says anything else, God is making the point that he is the one who is able to do whatever he says. Now that's important, for throughout this passage, God intends to promise the impossible. For example, years ago, God had promised Abraham land and descendants. That's old news. But now God promises... Not just that I will make you a great nation and live in this land, 
But I will make many nations come from you. I will make many kings come from you. Sarah will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. And for how long? I will establish this as an everlasting covenant. Well, as we suggested when we talked about lands, people, this is bigger than Abram's family growing to a big nation and living in this land. It's nothing less than the peoples of the world and the whole earth. This wasn't just about Abram's direct descendants. According to verses 12 and 13, God include, intended to include every servant born in his house, everyone brought from a foreigner, even those who are not your offspring. In other words, this blessing on the nations was intended to include the Gentiles, the nobodies, from the very beginning. This is more than just a family promise. God is promising the impossible. Furthermore, <clears throat> God was not satisfied with just using natural processes. You see, Abraham was perfectly happy with his son Ishmael, who was now 13 years old. Surely God, through the worst of circumstances, had nonetheless given him this child through Hagar. Now he had an heir and he was content. An old man with a son, someone to leave things to, and he's happy. But God says, oh no, no, my plans are much bigger. Yes, I will bless Ishmael, I will make of him a great nation, but my promises will be supernaturally carried out by a son who's going to be born to Sarah. Born to Sarah when she's 90 and you're 100. For the covenant cannot be by Ishmael, for then it would depend on man working out God's plans. But God's covenant is not dependent on any man's ingenuity or clever maneuvering. God himself is able to keep his promise. Natural processes are not an obstacle to him. He created them. Covenant is his. And it's his ways and it's his power. Folks, what God made clear of Abraham concerning his mighty power, the power of El Shaddai, God Almighty, applies to us too. This morning I remind you of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which we are told is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Now that, that's important, for too often the promise of the gospel has been flattened. Its promise has been distorted and reduced down to something more manageable. But I tell you, God has not promised that he would make us feel better about ourselves. You can take a hot shower and you'll feel better about yourself. God has not promised that he will make us all nice middle-class families. You get a good job and find some good schools and you'll be a nice middle-class family. And God has not promised that we will know no pain in life and we'll know no trouble. Jesus knew pain and trouble and he was not rich and we will know pain and trouble and we probably won't be rich either. No, what God has promised, what he was promising Abraham and what has come to fulfillment in Christ and in the gospel of Jesus is infinitely greater greater than anything you or I could pull off by our own maneuvering and our own efforts. God has promised to remove the guilt of sin before God. To wipe the record clean. Not just make us feel better about our sins or remove the guilt feelings. To expunge the record. You can't do that. God has promised to give us new spiritual life 
nothing less than being born anew, a new creature. You can't born yourself again. God has promised that he himself, in the person of his mighty Holy Spirit, will come and dwell within us all our days. He has promised that he will join us to other new creatures in Christ in a family relationship that is richer and stronger than blood ties. He has promised that death itself can no longer defeat his people. For we will live forever with him. Death will only be swallowed up by life. Indeed, this is not just a a spiritual thing. He has promised that these bodies will rise from the dead as Jesus' glorious body did. And we'll live forever in a new heaven and a new earth. God has promised that all the things that he brings into our life right now, all are working toward that goal. The day that we will stand perfect before God, absolutely, completely, perfectly conformed to the beauty and the image of Jesus Christ. Now folks, you can manufacture a lot of religion. You can manufacture a lot of Christian religion. But you cannot anymore begin to do those things than Abram and Sarah could have a baby when they're a hundred years old. Ah, but the Lord, who calls himself El Shaddai, God Almighty, he is able to do everything he said. He has proved it by the incarnation and the death and the resurrection and exaltation of Jesus. So how should we respond? (coughs) Well, according to verse 17, when Abram heard such impossible things, he fell down on his face laughing. (laughs) Everybody say, oh, well, that must have been really disrespectful. No, this was not a laugh of scorn and derision. This was a laughter of sheer delight, overwhelmed with joy because he knew and finally believed that God, no matter how outrageous his promises might be, is able to do what he says. We know that that's the case. We know this was laughter of faith, for the New Testament tells us so. The Holy Spirit gives us his own commentary in Romans chapter 4. Let me read verse 18. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said of him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. And that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. He gave glory to God. Apparently, as he laughed, flat on his face on the ground. And God said, by the way, that child of promise, you can call him Isaac. That means laughter. 
Michael Card wrote a delightful little song about this incident. Let me just read it to you. It's called, They Called Him Laughter About Isaac. A barren land and a barren wife made Abraham laugh at his wandering life. A cruel joke it seemed then to call him the father of nations. A heavenly prank, a celestial joke, because gray hair and babies leave no room for hope. But hoping was something this hopeless old man learned to do. They called him laughter, for he came after the father had made an impossible promise come true. The birth of a baby to a hopeless old lady. So they call him laughter, because no other name would do. A cry in the darkness, and laughter at night, an elderly couple sit holding him tight. An improbable infant, a punchline, a promise come true. They laughed till they wept, and they laughed at their tears. This miracle baby they'd wanted for years would make a Messiah who'd give us impossible joy. Oh, I don't know what promise of God seems impossible to you today. But I know that the Lord has not changed. He calls himself El Shaddai. He is able to do everything he said. Well, we didn't talk about circumcision yet. We'll come to that next time. But hopefully we're confronted somewhat by the covenant that God has made, which is the same covenant that we have, the covenant of which circumcision was a sign. This passage doesn't tell us everything about the covenant. That's the unfolding story about the whole, throughout the whole Bible. But it does make a couple of things clear which have not changed. First, that God sets the terms of his covenant. It's not ours to negotiate. Like Abraham, we must fall on our face in devotion and unquestioning obedience. And secondly, that God is able to do what he promised. He's often told us things that are beyond our comprehension, but we need not feel any compulsion to flatten those things or reinterpret them or tame them, we need to learn to trust him. Falling on our face laughing, if necessary, for God is able to do what he said. Amen. Thank you, Father, for your word and for these truths that are as current as our experience today. And we see that uh, this is the way that you dealt with Abraham. The promise you made to him and the assurances you gave him were not so different than how you dealt with us. Except that we have come to see and understand something of the fulfillment and the fullness of the covenant blessing that's come in Jesus, which he only understood in a poor shadow. But may our submission to you and made our faith in you not be less than Abraham. Grant to us, Lord, a joyful delight and joyful submission. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.